Amen. Good. Well, uh, we are faithfully walking through and consistently walking through the book of John, which was wonderful last week, as a matter of fact. We were going through chapter 9, I mean chapter 10, excuse me, and in John chapter 10, Jesus actually attends what we know as the Festival of Lights, or you might better know it as Hanukkah. And as Jesus was attending Hanukkah, um, so much happened right there where he basically showed himself to be the true shepherd. And he distinguished himself from all other religions, the Pharisees and all false teachers, and he called them thieves and robbers, here to destroy the sheep. They don't come through the gate, which is Jesus himself, but they climb over through another way. And here they wanted to stone him. As if it wasn't bad enough, we now come to chapter 11, and we're going to attempt to work through most of the chapter. Uh, but in chapter 11 is where Lazarus rises from the dead. Jesus conquers death. So read with me John chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, as we walk through this chapter. The Bible says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness of Lazarus is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, where did we hear this before? We heard this with the man who was born blind. A couple of chapters ago, we dealt with that, where Jesus goes to this man, takes mud, or takes soil, spits in it, turns it into clay on the Sabbath, which you're not allowed to do, and he heals this man's blind eyes. But he also said that this man's sickness was not because of his sin or his parents' sin, but this man was sick for the glory of God, because when Jesus healed him, many believed. Here we have another situation where Jesus comes and he says, now this sickness that Lazarus is dealing with is also for the glory of God. Now, we learned in the book of John that every single thing Jesus did, he did with a purpose, for a purpose, and he did it on purpose. And what's so beautiful to me is that there isn't one person ever created throughout the history of humanity that wasn't created with the exact same purpose. I used to run around daily in search for my purpose. And I would always second guess the thing I was currently doing. And I realized somebody came to me and they wanted to sell me this package, um, your purpose plan. I forget what it was. And so I said to the lady, what do you mean? She goes, just do this, and you will discover your purpose. I said to her, how do you know I'm not already in my purpose? You're like talking to me as if I'm not in my purpose. She goes, well, don't you want to know the purpose of your life? I'm like, I've been searching for it for 20 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> but one thing I've realized is the Bible says that God divinely orders the steps of the righteous, does he not? He orders your steps. 
and we're constantly believing that we are out of His purpose. He says, all things work together for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, not ours. And so, all things are working together for the good because you are in His purpose. But what is His purpose for you? The same purpose, the very same purpose that this man got sick over and died from. He died for the purpose of glorifying God. The blind man was born blind, not because of sin, but for the purpose of glorifying God. The Bible says, but all things were created for His purpose and His pleasure. You and I, folks, we have one purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God with where you're at. You and I are currently here, ready to glorify God. I, I like to say it this way. Um, you know, <clears throat> many people say, well, you know, it was God's purpose for me to purchase this house in this neighborhood, in this town, at that price. Like, well, what if you fulfill God's purpose, you buy that house in that town, on that street, for that price, at that time? Yes, I'm in God's purpose for my life. My question is, are you loving your neighbor, the one you're living next to now? Because as far as I understood was that that would be God's purpose for your life, right? You could be married to the right person. And loving another, and that is not God's purpose for your life, <laughs> you know. You could have children and not raise them for God, and that's not your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God where you're at, with what you have, with whom you, with whom you are around. Amen? This is our purpose, to reflect who God is. That's your purpose. If you want to be in your purpose, reflect God, where you're at, with whom you are married to and around, right? Glorify God where you're at. Reflect His glory. That's why you were created. Now, many people choose to be doctors. Others choose not to be doctors. Let me say it that way. Many choose to be mechanics. Many choose to be different things. It doesn't matter where you live. Unless you love your neighbor, you're not in God's purpose for your life. It doesn't matter who you're married to. Unless you glorify God in the marriage that you have, you are not in your purpose. Make sense? And so, very important for us to realize that Jesus did everything He did for a purpose, on purpose. And that is how you have purpose in life. You do everything on purpose. I love my neighbor. Why? Because I know this would please God. Now, I don't please God. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not right with God because I love my neighbor. No, I love my neighbor because I'm right with God. Like, for instance, you don't worship in order to be right with God. People who are right with God love to worship Him. Those who know Him love to serve Him. We aren't made just and righteous by our serving Him or by our worship of Him, or by our studying of the Bible. No, we love to worship Him, serve Him, and study the Bible because we know Him. You see, I don't, I don't serve my wife as well as I do <laughs> in order to be married to her. No, because we love each other and are married to each other, we serve one another, right? We are kind to one another. We are understanding of one another. 
we, I forget the word now, but we um, defer to one another is the word I'm looking for. Defer to one another. Not to be married because we married. In the same way, we serve God because we love Him. Not, in, uh, and not, because, uh, not to be right with Him. All right, you get where I'm going. So we see in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. And that miracle was a sign that pointed to something about Jesus. That's the first thing that happened in His ministry. He was at a wedding which is also the last thing in his ministry. He turns water into wine, significant symbolic of his blood, that washes his bride and cleanses her of all sin to be married to him. So every, every miracle was a sign pointing to he, who he was, his character and his attributes. Then we see in chapter 4, he heals a dying man. In chapter 5, Jesus cures the paralyzed man. In chapter 6, he multiplies food for thousands of people. He fulfills what we saw happen in the desert when manna just kept falling and falling and falling from the sky. Here he is, the bread from heaven for you and I. In chapter 6, he walks on water. He's supreme over nature. He also stills the storm. He's God over the elements. We see in chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man. This points to what he was about to do for all those. Those who belong to him, who he was going to open their eyes so that they can see their state and their need for him. Unless a man is born again, he cannot even see. And yet Jesus was going to open the eyes of the blind. And then we see in chapter 10, he calls himself the true shepherd and all the Pharisees and false teachers, thieves and robbers. When he calls himself the true shepherd, he was really calling himself God. Why? Because all these people that he was talking to, they were Jews and they understood that all their ancestors believed that God was their shepherd. Abraham called God his shepherd. The psalmist David said, the Lord is my shepherd. And here comes Jesus and he says, I am the true shepherd, meaning I am the one you guys were referring to as shepherd. I am God. Now, we're going to look at John's account of the resurrection miracle of Lazarus, but know that all of the miracles and signs performed by Jesus up to John chapter 11, um, the, uh, of all those miracles I just mentioned, the raising of Lazarus is the most spectacular, magnificent of, uh, of all and glorifies God more than any. And, the, and why is this? Because through this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus conquers man's greatest enemy, which is death. And in this vivid display of victory over death and, and the grave, we are given a picture of who God is, and secondly, what God was going to do for His own, for you and I. So this miracle right here in John chapter 11 speaks to you, speaks to me and teaches us who he is and what he is doing for us. So the first question is, who is God in this miracle? Who is he? What does this sign point to regarding him? Well, it shows that he is the giver of life. It shows 
that he is the resurrection and he is the life. It shows that he is the fountain of life. He is the source from, what, from where all life comes. This shows he's a seity. It's a, doc, it's a theological term, a seity of God, which basically means he needs no one and he's a dependent on nothing, but he exists within himself and he sustains himself without the help or permission of any. That's the seity of God. And this proves he's a seity, that he does not depend on or anything or anyone to give him life or sustain the life that he has, but that he himself is life. He himself is that fountain or that source that produces life. And nothing and no one can take it from him. Death cannot hold him. On the contrary, he conquers death itself. I don't want to serve a God that's conquered by death. Neither do you. Our God shows himself to be greater than your greatest enemy. So what does this miracle of resurrection mean to you and I? Because now we see what it points to regarding God. But what is it actually saying to you? The miracle is saying two things to you today, and that is that he will give spiritual life to those who are dead in their sins. Just like he gave life to Lazarus, this is a type and a shadow, a picture of what he was going to do for his own. He is going to give them spiritual life. Just like when Jesus healed the blind man, he was showing us that he was going to open the eyes of those who belong to him. Now in the same way, this miracle of resurrection shows that God will soon, He will take those who are spiritually dead in their sins and through a divine miracle, raise them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Secondly, what does this miracle say to you? So it's a promise that He will raise you spiritually from death to life. And secondly, just like he brought Lazarus out of that grave back into life, so also Jesus in the afterlife. He will bring those who believe in him out of the grave into eternal life. I mean, that's a major promise, and we're going to look more into that because that's actually something to look forward to. In John chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, let's move on to the next two verses. It says, Now Jesus loved. Can you all say, Jesus loved? All right, so Jesus loved. And then specifically Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus, the Bible says. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's kind of like a strange thing to do, right? I hear, my, I hear Lazarus is sick. I'm the healer. So what I'm going to do is, since I love him so much, I'm going to stay away a little longer. <laughs> it's a strange thing Jesus did here. But Jesus loves these two sisters and their brothers so much that he made that decision. So the question we want to ask is, what kind of love did Jesus love his followers with? Because if we can see what kind of love Jesus loved his followers with, then we'll know what kind of love he loves us with. All right? You see, most people would simply, when they ask that question, what kind of love does Jesus have for his followers, they would simply think of their deepest, most 
a pure love they may have for a specific person, and then what they will do is they will equate it with how they believe Jesus would love everybody else and how Jesus should love everybody else. I mean, this is the, this is the disaster of our modern age, is the redefining of terms. Anybody can now define what the meaning of love is and justify in, on that definition their acts. Oh, I love, I love that person. That's why I'm free to have them and marry them. And, but the definition of love isn't up to us. God is the one who defines love. I like to say it this way. God is love. Love is not God. Love does not define who He is. That's idol worship. God, from the Bible, defines what it means to love. And so here we see Jesus is loving Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we see that the truth about this love is that we should not think of it from a human perspective. Consider this. I love my wife in a very different way than I love all other women. I love my children in a very different way than I love all other people around the world. You see, that's true for you. Uh, if you have a dog, you love your dog in a very different way than you love all of your siblings. It's not that you don't love your dog or you don't love your siblings. You love both but in different ways. question is, in what way did Jesus love his disciples? In this example, we see Jesus loved this family by waiting for Lazarus to first die before coming to him. It says it in the same sentence. Now, Jesus loved them, and so he stayed two days longer. That's what it says right there in verse 5 and 6. He loved them. So he waited for Lazarus to die. Evidently, Jesus' love for his disciples doesn't feel the same way we think love ought to feel. But it is, however, the way Jesus loved his disciples. So what we see here regarding Jesus' love is this, that his love for his disciples is always for their best eternal interest. His love is for their eternal interest. Doing what would benefit somebody eternally is a true act of love the way Jesus loves. So the best possible thing you can do for somebody isn't to support them financially without teaching them the gospel. The best thing you can do is share with somebody the truth. That is the most powerful way to love anybody because that is what is eternal, right? I cannot love you the way God loves you if I don't love you with eternity in mind. So the question we can ask ourselves is, as parents, in what way do we love our children? In what way do we love our children? Most people, I can tell you now, love their children in a very temporal way. They, they prioritize temporal things above spiritual things. And that is not to love your, your kids like God loves you. 
In what way do you love your wife? Do you build your marriage on eternal values and with eternity in mind? So in this scenario, Jesus delays um, his, 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 his trip in order to see them benefit eternally in a way. He could have rushed over to Lazarus on day one and healed him and he wouldn't have died. But Jesus didn't because raising Lazarus from the dead would allow them to see God's power over death. Raising Lazarus from the dead would... would reveal to them God's authority over the grave, would reveal to them God's ability to conquer their greatest enemy, which is death. This is what would glorify God in the greatest way, and that is why Jesus waited. So therefore, God's glory revealed to them. In other words, God's power, God's authority, God's ability revealed to them, God's glory revealed to them, is how Jesus loved them. Now, this is a very powerful thing because many times people um, think that you will believe me when I become passionate about the message that God loves you, sister. God, just believe it. God loves you. And I've often wondered when people have ministered to me that way, like, okay, why is it that this is not working for me? God loves you. Believe it. Okay. Especially the person who doesn't know God, they think that you have a figment of your imagination. You've got this fairy in the sky right, that you're believing in, and you're trying to convince me, or they trying to, you're trying to convince me that the fairy, your fairy in the sky, your figment of your imagination, loves me. I'm like, all right, now I got it. Thank you. Bye now. <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's not. It, it's it doesn't work. I mean, nobody really comes to God. Because somebody else convinced them, God loves you. They come to God when God is revealed to them. That's when they go, whoa, and fall on their knees. It's when they see attributes, the attributes and the character of God, they fall on their knees and they worship God. You see, so that is the way to minister God's love to somebody is revealing God to them. Showing them who God is, His character and His attributes. And so here is how Jesus loved Martha, Mary, by revealing God to them and His glory. I mean, this is powerful to understand because every single time a part of God's Divine character is revealed to me that is God loving on me. Every time God's attribute, an attribute is revealed to me, it is God loving on me. Have you ever looked into the scriptures and experienced a breathtaking truth about God Himself? You're just reading and reading and you went, wow, this is amazing. Look how just God is. Or you're reading and reading and you go, wow, this is amazing. Look at how compassionate he is. You see, that's, that's a character trait of God. Or you read about his attributes. You read about the aseity of God, that he needs nothing and he needs no one to exist. Or you read about the eternality of God, that he's from, from eternal past to eternal future. I mean, if I ask you, uh, how long is eternity? 
you would always think one way. You would think forward. You would think eternity is, you know, forever and ever and ever and ever and never stops. Yeah, but the, the thing about God is, not only is God eternal in the future, but He's also eternity past. There is no beginning to Him. He is from eternity past. And when you see these truths about, these attributes about God, the fact that He's omni, omniscient, He's omnipresent, He's omnipotent, all these attributes about God, when you see it and you recognize it and it's revealed to you, that is God loving on you. You see, Jesus needed Lazarus to die so He could raise him from the dead, that in this act, God's power, authority, and supremacy, and His sovereignty would be revealed to them. Why did Jesus want that revealed to them? Because He loved them. He loved them. And that is how we also love. It's not the only way, but it's the most important way to love. So next time you're reading your Bible and something jumps at you, you go, wow, that's great. That's God loving you. That's the love of God. It's not some guy with long hair going, God loves you, dude. God loves you. You know, tattoos and everything, you know. <laughs> that's not how you share the love of God. Then verse 11 through 14, it says, And after this, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going so that I may awaken him from sleep. Now listen to this, listen to the terminology Jesus uses here, because I think it's it's tremendously insightful. This will remove so much fear in your life and anxiety if you would just grab a hold of this. Jesus said to his to, to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has what? Fallen asleep. But I'm going so that I may awaken him from sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will come out of it. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking about actual sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus died, okay? Jeez. Here Jesus is teaching on death. Jesus teaches that death for the believer is like falling asleep. It is actually a sleep that is longer than usual. Horst Bals, which is a German, he's a German Protestant theologian in the New Testament scholar, he wrote this quote, It is no wonder then that sleep becomes the main way of referring to death in Christian thought beginning with the post-apostolic fathers. So right after the, the, the apostles, people no longer referred to death as death. They started referring to death as sleep. That's the language they used. He says, and I quote, Indeed, our word cemetery comes from the Greek word koimeterion. Now, I know I butchered that word, but koimeterion is where we get the word cemetery from, which is the, word, which is the term a place of sleep. Also, John Chrysostom, Chrysostom, he uh, died in 407 after Jesus. 
He was a very important early church father who served in, as an archbishop uh, of Constantinople. He said, quote, If you fear death, you should also fear sleep. If you fear death, you should also fear sleep. Now, in John chapter 11, verse 15, Jesus then continues. He says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there when he was sick, when he died. Why? So that you may believe. So that you may believe. He's speaking to his disciples. He's saying, I need you guys to come and see this so that you may believe. So consider the reason why Jesus waited. So that people may see and believe. Now that means to Jesus, faith is more important than health. Otherwise, he would have rushed off and healed Lazarus, right? But faith was more important to him than Lazarus' health, his comfort, or even his life. Let's pick it up in verse 16. It says, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let's also go so that we may die with him. Why did he say that? Because we're just coming out of a chapter where they were trying to kill him, stone him. So now, they're basically hiding... And Jesus is saying, well, let's go to where Lazarus is buried. But if they had to go there, they would be revealed to everyone, and they would come and stone Jesus. And so here, Thomas is saying, well, let's go with Jesus, and let's go die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been, or Lazarus had already been, in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 stadia away, and many two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. So then Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, or if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am that resurrection and I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes and he who comes into the world. So here Jesus declares his own identity, which also has two promises connected to it. Here's his identity, and promises are connected to his identity. The promises are the resurrection, number one, and life, number two. So in declaring this, Jesus makes a promise, those who identify with him in his identity has the resurrection, and they have life. Both promises become theirs. But my question is, what precisely are these promises of resurrection and life? What does that mean to you and I today? Okay, Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. Now what? What does that mean to us? Well, first, the resurrection is here referred to what will take place on the last day. So, yeah, Martha was right in a way for saying, I know that you are the resurrection 
on the last day, but my brother is dead now. <laughs> so, yes, that is true. He is the resurrection. It is referred here to what will take place on that last day, and that means on that day, on Christ's command, like a trumpet, you will take on a resurrected body, and you will walk out of your grave, and you will meet Him in the air, but you will come out of the grave just like Lazarus did, with your resurrected body. That is, the pro that is the promise made when He said, I am the resurrection. But then He said, I am the life. What does that mean? Life here means that your life is eternal. Your life is eternal, and that is uninterrupted by death. Only by sleep. It's uninterrupted by death. Your eternal life is interrupted by sleep only. When did your eternal life begin? That's the question. You were given eternal life when He birthed you anew into a creature that now believes and responds. When you were born again, you were born into a creature that has eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and a heart that now can respond. That's why we have to understand ordo salutis, the order of salvation, that God births you outside of any of your participation unless a man is born from above, born from God, born by the Spirit of God. They can't even see. But when God births you anew, when He gives birth to you, suddenly you are now a new creature with eyes that see, with ears that hear. And suddenly you go like, oh, God, I need a Savior, and I believe that Jesus is He. Suddenly your heart that was a heart of stone <coughs> that couldn't respond is now a heart of flesh that does respond. So He births you anew by the Holy Spirit, and when He did, you believed, and when you believed, you had eternal life. It's interesting how we, we don't realize that eternal life means eternal life. Interrupted by sleep only. No death. Death, where is your sting? There is no such thing for those who are in Christ. He is your eternal life. Then verse 28 through 35, when she had said this, this is Martha, she left and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard this, she got up and quickly, ran, quickly came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house and were counseling, uh, consoling her. When they saw that Mary had gotten up quickly and left, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews came with her, were also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled both at the same time. He was deeply moved and troubled both at the same time. Those are two emotions. And he said, where have you laid him? 
They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 35. That famous verse. Shortest verse in the Bible. Interesting. Why is Jesus weeping? Knowing he's about to raise this man from the dead. Why is he weeping over something that he knows is so victorious? According to the IVP, New Testament commentary, Jesus expresses two different emotions here. He weeps. Why? Because the Bible tells you to weep with those who weep. That's why he was weeping, because they were weeping. Not, not the reason they were weeping. He wasn't weeping over the same reason. He was weeping because they were weeping. While at the same time, he was deeply angered and moved by his anger. Who was he angry at? Death. While at the same time saddened at their grief. He was angered at death. The IVP New Testament commentary says Jesus' anger rose in him as he came to the tomb in the state of anger. The word is embroimomenos. meaning ready to exercise his power over death because of his anger. That is the word we find in verse 33 when it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and he was embroimomenos. He was troubled. He was angered. So the idea here given in the original language is that Christ approaches the grave with Lazarus in it as a fighter approaching his enemy. Two opponents viciously attacking each other. Jesus, the life giver, coming to conquer death, the life taker. John Calvin says, and I quote about this portion, Christ does not come to the grave as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to overcome stands before his eyes. The fight is on. And Jesus was about to conquer death and the grave. A picture of what he was about to do in just a few days from then on the cross in, in Jerusalem. Let's finish verse 36. It says, So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. Because here's Jesus weeping. And they go like, look, look at how he loves him. But now they're going to put a spin on it, right? Watch this. But some of them said, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have also kept Lazarus from dying? I mean, if he loved him, why didn't he keep him from dying? Because he loved them so much that he was going to reveal God to them. That's why. Verse 38, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Here's that word again, deeply angered from within. Came to the tomb like a wrestler, like a fighter, ready to conquer. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. This is such a great picture of what was about to happen to Jesus himself. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time <coughs> there will be a stench. For he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, 
I thank you that you have heard me. But I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I can only imagine it was like a trumpet. Come. It's like that last trumpet. Come and you will hear your name. It's an amazing thing. How many of you, you heard the gospel throughout your life and you thought, garbage, stupidity, foolishness. But doesn't the Bible say to the unsaved person, the things of God's foolishness? And then there came this day when you heard the gospel and you went, oh, that's, that's the most valuable truth I've ever heard. And it's calling my name. When I heard the gospel, it was like I was called. I was called. But do you know why that is so important? Because in the previous chapter, didn't Jesus say, I'm the true shepherd, and I call my sheep by name? How does he do it? By the gospel. The gospel is preached, and there might be a thousand people in a room, and one person goes, oh, yes, yes, I'll yeah, I'm coming, I'm coming, Lord, I'm coming. The gospel is preached, and they're hearing God calling them. He calls them by name. He doesn't call everybody. He calls them by name. An amazing thing, because on that last day, when that trumpet sounds, you will be called, and you will hear your name. <laughs> yes, that's me, I'm coming. And so here we see Jesus doing that. He calls out, Lazarus, come out! And out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with cloth. Jesus said to, him, to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many Jews who came to Mary... And saw what Jesus had done, believed in him. This is, this is just blows me away. Watch this. Many who came with Mary and saw what Jesus did, believed in Jesus. Because that miracle was a sign pointing to who Jesus was, the resurrection and the life, the true shepherd. He was the Messiah Moses spoke of, the prophets spoke of. They saw this as a sign that this is Him that will take away the sins of the world as John was preaching earlier on. And this I get, but the next verse I don't. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And yeah, the trigger got pulled. Now they wanted to crucify Him. It says, some believed... But others went to the Pharisees and said, yep, watch out, this is what's happening. And from there on, the Bible says, if you read further, then they, then they wanted to crucify him. All gloves came off. Interesting, how, how do you believe, how could this be? Okay, these people all knew the Scriptures, right? Christians today don't know the Scriptures because they don't believe the Old Testament's for them. When the Bible talks about Scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament. 
those, these people all understood and knew the Old Testament. They knew Moses testified of this coming Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled all of what Moses said. They knew the prophets and what the prophets said about the coming Messiah, and they saw Jesus fulfilling all that the prophets said. Not only did they know Moses and the prophets, but they have been following the news about this man, Jesus, who came upon the scene, and John the Baptist, the latest prophet from God, was saying, hey, I testify, this is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. Not only did they know Moses, the prophets, they knew John the Baptist. Not only did they know all those prophecies, but they also understood that Jesus was the miracle worker, and all these miracles were signs pointing to His divinity, His character, and His person, His deity. And they saw Him open the blind eye. They saw Him make the crippled man walk. Now they're seeing Him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they still, they still didn't have enough evidence that He was in fact the one they'd been waiting for. They just couldn't see it. It's like when you take a bright light and you're shining it in the face of a blind person. Can he see the light? No. He needs a miracle. He needs a miracle from God. He needs to be birthed by God so he can see. You can scream into a deaf man's ear. Does he hear a thing? No. You can call a dead man. Does he come forward? No unless God divinely performs a miracle. Calls by name, calls him by name, and calls him out of death into life. So here again we see that some, as Jesus said in the previous chapter, as you remembered last week, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do not believe, why? Because you are not my sheep. He said it. It's like, you can't even argue this. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He did not say, because you don't believe, therefore you are not my sheep. He said, because you are not my sheep, therefore you don't believe. I fulfill Moses. I fulfill the prophets. You have testimony in John. You have testimony by all these miracles you see. And right now I raise the dead. I have conquered death. That is supposed to be the final sign you need to prove to you that I am the one you've been waiting for. But you still don't believe because you're not my sheep. Because in the previous chapter he did say, I call them by name, and they follow. And they follow. Tell you what a comforting thought it is. What a comforting thought it is that I could not be serving God right now had it not been for God. If it wasn't God, if it were, and you know what? Everybody believes this truth, did you know? Everybody believes this truth. If somebody has a child and their child is so far gone, their child is so lost, and rages against God. What does that parent do? They go down <laughs> on their knees and they say, God, I've run, out of all, I've run out of all ideas. Now all I can do is I can just believe that you're going you're gonna to just reach out and grab them. God, now I believe you. 
you know, you're the only one that can do this now. We all believe that. Unless God comes to a person, that person doesn't ever want God. Cannot serve God, will not serve God, will not come to Christ, cannot repent because repentance, by the way, is a gift. He cannot have faith because faith also is a gift from God, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. So when you have faith in God, this is, this is reason for us to fall to our knees and say, thank you, God. When you have the ability to repent, this is us falling to our knees saying, thank you, God. When you see yourself following God, thank you that I am part of your fold and that you have called my name. When you see anything revealed by God, say, thank you, God, for loving me because this is the way God loves us. He shows himself to us. Many believed after somebody was raised from the dead, but many didn't. Do you know why that is true? Because there's another story in the Bible, and I'll close with this. Also, parable, well, it's not a parable, it's a true story because Jesus said that there was a certain man. There was a certain man, rich man, and then there was a beggar named Lazarus. It doesn't give us the rich man's name. And this beggar was God-fearing and the rich man wasn't. This beggar dies. He goes into the, uh, bosom, Abraham's bosom. The rich man dies and he goes into Hades. And then he calls out to Abraham. He said, Abraham, Father Abraham, please. I'm burning up in this flame. Tell the beggar Lazarus to go and dip his finger in water and, and drip it on my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham says, there's a gulf between us. Can't do it. He says, well, then I beg you, please, send somebody to go and preach to my family. And tell them. Abraham says what to them? Abraham says what to the rich men? They have Moses and the prophets. He goes, okay, no, but that's not enough. Because they've always had Moses and the prophets. And they're still not responding. He says, what, please, send somebody from the dead. Send somebody from the dead. You know, you hear all of these stories about people who have gone to hell. And they've seen, you know, like... like Send somebody from the dead. Because if they go and they speak to my family, my family will listen. And Abraham goes, not even that would work. <laughs> not even raising somebody from the dead would work. That does not open anybody's eyes. That does not cause anybody to hear. That doesn't cause anybody to be pulled out of death into life. That doesn't birth anybody anew. As a matter of fact, these people, after they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, is when they decided, that's it, we have to crucify him. Truth always divides. The moment truth falls down on the table, some run to God for shelter, and others immediately want to war against God. And that's what truth always does. Jesus said, I didn't come to make peace, I come to bring a sword. <laughs> Because he is truth. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer.